I'm Dorianne Wheel. Welcome to Thrive with Dr. D. As we approach the end of the year, you know, we're thinking about connection and we're thinking about going forth positively with more of a feeling of inclusion and more of a feeling of support, which I think has been highlighted tremendously throughout this year. So it's my great pleasure to welcome you, John Edmondson, to our show and that you are going to share some of your experiences with the many numerous and diverse clients that you've had and your wisdom with us today. You are a counsellor, you are a facilitator. I think it's fair to say that you are a transformation specialist and a negotiator and you've dedicated your life to look at people and say how can we be more connected, inclusive, by not just shoving things away or under the carpet, but by knowing that if we name them, there's a possibility of taking them, and then going on a very special journey that you take your clients on. So perhaps you can start, John, just by telling us a little bit about what you do do every day and what your focus is. Sure, Dr. D, and thank you again. It's an honor for me to be on your show today and talk about this. And together, as we all try to do our best to bring the world together and people together, so a little bit what I do today, I work at a residential treatment center as part of what I do, helping people recover from any form of addiction or mental health challenge. We see individuals anywhere from the teenager to the um, professional athlete, to people that are maybe coming out of prison, to people that work in law enforcement. It's a very fascinating, wonderful mix of people that come together for a common purpose of healing. Uh, I'm also uh, the CEO of a foundation that's newly formed and developing. Uh, the LifeWorks Foundation. And what we're doing is we're taking all that wisdom that we know about the integrated approach of Healing Springs Ranch and working with people to heal from trauma and addiction out of the communities. So that we work with the first responders directly before they need to come see us. We're working with the people in the prisons when they're coming out. We're working with the school systems to help people reach their full potential. Because something we've realized through this work is the great equalizer to all things is one, suffering, because we all go through it, but then two, that desire to have a better life. And the way to do that is very, very similar for everybody. There'll be some differences depending on maybe our backgrounds or our profession or our line of work or where we live, but the essence of that is always the same. You know, that we're just trying to recover from the suffering we have within us. We're trying to reach our full potential and we need a guide along the way to do that. Now, before that, I spent a long journey working in communities, uh, starting as a school teacher, but an interesting difference was I wasn't just teaching uh, the kids, I was also teaching the administrators, because I spoke Spanish, they wanted to learn that to talk to the kids, many of the children that we have here in Texas. So I got a unique point of view of both the, the teachers, excuse me, the kids, some of the teachers' point of view, and the administrator point of view, and how each person thought the other needed to get it. If they would just understand what we're going through, the ministers, if they would just understand what we're trying to do, and the teachers, if we just understand what it's like in the classroom. And that began to really educate me on how we all need to try to understand each other and come together as opposed to othering, always kind of pointing the finger somewhere else. So it's been a quite a fascinating journey. So that's the most fascinating process. And um, I mean, observation that, of course, you know, the minute something doesn't feel right or uncomfortable or even, you know, is worse, our kind of default mode is to look outside ourselves and say, mm -hmm. you know, who do we blame and whose fault it is? And I think what you're saying is as long as that is maintained, mm -hmm. we are almost disempowering ourselves because we don't have that much capacity 
to change him or her or luck or fate or circumstance or the environment. Mm. But the minute we say that if we are unhappy, we own the problem. If I'm unhappy, I own the problem. Sort of starts off a journey of saying, if mm -hmm. I own the problem, what can I do about it? And that sounds, you know, when you say getting it, everyone thinks that no one gets them. And so possibly the beginning of that process is to make sure that you've got, make sure that you've gotten the other person. I know that's not good English. We're talking about depth of understanding, really. And so surely that must be the very, very first part in the whole process of forgiveness and reconciliation that you understand. Well, I think that's a great question. Something you said, Dr. D, which is powerful and so spot on is we disempower ourselves when we hold on to a resentment, um, but we can empower ourselves when we begin the process of letting it go. So something that people, we all get to understand is there may have been a time where that anger made sense. There may have been a time where that feeling made sense, but what we're trying to do as part of forgiveness is let go of resentments. But if we look at really the origin of the word resentment, re, which is to repeat, and then sentir, which is to feel. So resentment is re-feeling the same thing over and over again. So maybe there was a moment we were hurt, we needed to get angry and stand up for ourselves. Or maybe we were afraid we needed to respond to something. But that feeling no longer has a purpose. And so we resent, we re-feel it over and over again, disempowering ourselves and harming ourselves in the process. And as long as our mind holds on to that image of the experience of it, that person is the problem, that person is the cause of my pain, we can't free ourselves. So one of the components of going towards freedom is one for us, for all of us, is why forgiveness? Why are we looking at that? Well, the purpose is I want to be free. People think forgiveness means redeeming other people's behavior. Okay, that's not the case at all. That what's wrong is wrong. But we want to be free. So looking towards what it is we want to do and then knowing that if we let go of these feelings, these experiences, we can start moving towards that freedom that we truly want. And again, they talk about the idea of forgive and forget doesn't mean we drop our boundaries. doesn't mean we open up the door for, you know, to be harmed or hurt again and say it's okay. It means we're no longer running it through our head over and over again every day, you know, thinking about that person with our cup of coffee, going to bed with that person in our mind at night. That's what we're really trying to do. And so when we achieve that, then it's much more possible. But as you said, this is a process. So we can talk about that in a minute. How do we step towards that freedom, that forgiveness? Yeah. I sometimes come across people, and I'd love to ask your advice before we go, who says, you know what, from my point of view, it's actually over. I don't need to make up with my parents or, you know, my child who's decided not to talk to me or this family system or whatever, you know, where we had this conflict ages ago. I really think that I'm at the stage of being able to let it go. And that sometimes you can see the effects of it in people's lives and they haven't been able to do that properly. But they don't, you know, they want to say, just leave it alone. Rather just help me to move on. Don't help me to reconnect and go back and face this thing all over again. Just tell me, you know, can you give me a recipe maybe for some skills and strategies that say, you know what, I just need to build my best life without going back into the past. Oh, that's a wonderful point of view. We run into that all the time, the I'm over it, the, the spiritual circumvention. 
you know, oh, I've forgiven them, I moved on, but I don't have to ever talk to them ever again. And I think there, there's two, it's always a dance depending on the situation. So there's some of us that we get lost and always thinking about and trying to fix and change other people and try to make everything right. And there's those of us who just keep running forward and try to avoid. And what we're talking about together is how do we find the balance between those two? So maybe we never talk to someone again, we need closure, which means we go and, and if they're safe individuals, we go and we do our best attempt to speak, or do our best attempt to make a difference, make change. And then when we do that, if that person doesn't respond, that's their journey. So then we can safely say, I've done my part. I've said my truth and I moved on. But the reality is many, many, many times, if we don't deal with something, if we don't face it, it comes right back at us somewhere else in our life until we finally move forward with it. So maybe we never talk to our dad again, but then our boss looks just like him in our mind and we recreate that. So I totally agree with you. It's a process. Some of us will get lost in the anger. Some of us try to avoid it, but we need to walk through it progressively, talk about everything, share everything we need to share with safe people, and then look about how we're going to close that door. Because forgiveness doesn't mean we invite people back into our lives that hurt us, but it also doesn't mean that we completely shut people out of our mind because then they're shutting off a part of ourselves. Maybe there was something wonderful about that person. We just haven't seen it yet. Okay. So let's use an example, which was quite an extreme example. And if these, the, we're talking about the sons now of the fathers of two very, very powerful cartels, right. which have become the stuff of movies and become this kind of focus of series and of Netflix. We're talking about the two families mm -hmm. that were highlighted in the Narcos series that is still featured on Netflix. Two huge cartels, warring families, huge hatred and resentment, which just became more and more pervasive and translated into behavior that was just extremely destructive in every way, destructive physically, destructive with such extreme loss and just involving lots of, of other people in different families and in communities for the sake of power and money and status and recognition. And that it seems that one, when one understands a little bit of that and the need for that kind of being on top and winning against all odds, that there would probably be very little motivation even for this. It was just so invested in, you know, who is more powerful, more influential, better, stronger, richer, and all of that. So just using that as a springboard, let me ask you, usually in other conflicts, do you have to be unhappy enough? Do you reach a point where you say, look, you know, I'm not that, what, what I thought would bring me satisfaction absolutely isn't, and in fact is bringing me pain. And I've reached the stage where it's enough. I can't do this anymore. I can't do this to myself. I can't do this to my family. Do you have to reach that or what would be the precipitating factor? In this case, it was the next generation. But are there precipitating factors that say, right, I just don't have the energy and it's too painful to go on? Mm -hmm. That's a great example with the two cartel members, the uh, Cali cartel and then uh, Pablo Escobar and how they, they fought each other. So horribly back in that time and, and 
and hurt each other very deeply, but now their sons have come together for reconciliation. When I sat with both of them and we were preparing for that presentation, the magic came out when they were actually kindly talking to each other and giving each other encouragement and kind of debriefing all their experiences, which is an amazing example of how the next generation can make change and can have reconciliation, even if their fathers or grandfathers hated each other and want to destroy each other. I think it's a lesson for every country, every world out there. One of the points that was very, very important that came across with both of them when they shared about their grandparents' stories as we continued to talk, and they were really just sharing back and forth with each other, two friends, two brothers, is we learned that on Pablo Escobar's side, the grandmother probably went through a trauma of her own, but her behaviors, her reaction to that trauma participated in Pablo Escobar's behavior. But they couldn't see what they were doing. So sometimes pain isn't enough. What needs to is begin today begin to look at what you can do differently to heal and grow. And also look at your why, your purpose. Because in both cases of cartel members, their purpose was on Pablo Escobar's side, according to the, his son, why that was never be poor, right? Always be rich, not be like dad, you know, and the motivation of, of his grandmother or Pablo Escobar's mother to really have that money. And on the other side with um, William, it was very different with it. Uh, Miguel, um, Rodriguez was that he didn't want to be like his dad. His dad was suffering from alcoholism. His dad was dishonest. His dad was going through those problems. And so their why, their motivation was so powerful, they forgot about everything else. And the why can work for us or against When we decide no one's ever going to hurt me again, when I shift my why, then I can begin to make a real change and difference in my behavior. And I don't need to crash and burn anymore um, to make that difference. So those are the, so the why actually, you know, what you're saying is the purpose and the why. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking now of a couple who were together for very, very many years. They were regarded in the community as a kind of consummate couple from a, a behavioral point of view, a family point of view, a religious point of view, and so on. What happened is that the, the husband, decided after quite a long time, that's only come out now, that he was going to leave his wife of very many years, many years for another person. The conflict that I want to talk to you now about is that, you know, because of that sense of betrayal and anger and the memory of shared experiences and putting yourself out and helping and all of that, has just caused the woman on the side to involve the children and the grandchildren and to say the kind of underlying message is that if you love and value me, which they do tremendously, I cannot see you have anything whatsoever to do with your father and nor your children. Mm -hmm. In support of me, just do this for me, certainly now. And those kind of things when other people in the family get embroiled into it are not that unusual. Very common. So, I mean, I don't know whether perhaps the, the, what I've presented to you is a timing element. It's soon. All you see for the first while is the, is the hurt and the betrayal and the anger. Mm -hmm. I don't know about the possibility. In fact, I don't think of the possibility of the kind of reconciliation where they'll get back together, the kind of acceptance that this person is still the father of common children 
and the grandfather of, of grandchildren. Mm -hmm. How do you begin to deal with a situation like that, which is quite common today? It's very common, and the ripple effects, if it's not dealt with, can go on for generations. So that's when we start talking about cross-generational trauma. And you're referring to that, that parental separation syndrome where uh, the children are asked to choose between one or the other. If you love me, you'll be with me. If you love dad, then you need to go with him and then stay away from me. And then that'll have, as we know, a ripple effect in their relationships later on. They have to kill a part of their truth, kill a part of the reality. And that's where drugs and alcohol come in to help manage those situations. But the wife in this case, part of what's going on is when I see this and I work with couples, if we're just going to be separating with love and compassion, that's a process because she's probably very hurt and probably a lot of pain. And her why at this point may be, how do I get out of the pain? How do I not hurt anymore? So if I can forget about him, if he cannot exist in my world and my life, that's what our brain tells us. Again, that's a shutting out syndrome. Then I'll be okay. So the, the purpose or the essence of it is admirableness since she doesn't want to hurt anymore. But her method is not the best one to do it because the reality is part of forgiveness and part of healing is we, we must face the pain, the reality of our lives. But there's a big, big difference between pain and suffering. Pain is when we feel hurt, when people have maybe betrayed us, maybe something's gone wrong, we have a disappointment. The vision of our life is no longer what we thought it was. Suffering is we spend the rest of our life holding on to that, resenting, being angry. That becomes our whole story instead of part of our story. So if I was sitting with this, this woman, who I'm sure is a wonderful human being, who's just probably wounded like many of them are, I'd invite her to express her anger in safe places. Get it all out. Because many times you go, no, 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 I'm over that. I don't want to see him anymore. Not true, because you're asking your kids to shut him out. So it goes from anger to hatred. And those are not the same thing. So, you know, when I see clients come into Healing Springs or other places and work with them, let's get the anger out. Say everything you need to say, not to them, but in a safe space. Now, maybe that's a letter. Maybe that's, in some cases, more physical. Maybe you're grabbing on the clay and you're expressing your voice strongly. Everyone's going to be different in what they need. And then let's use techniques like mindfulness, you know, breathing, centering. Let's use things like self-compassion, be kind to ourselves. And see if I can feel good enough inside of me, if she can feel good enough inside of herself, where she can manage that pain on a regular basis. Wake up with realistic expectations. So I get up today, oh, I'm going to feel some pain today about my ex-husband and what happened. I know that. I don't have to suffer about it. So I'm journal, I'm going to breathe, I'm going to do something nice for myself, and I'm going to connect with my kids and hopefully give them permission to, you know, to connect with their father and love them too. Because I agree with you. When we ask someone not to love another person, then maybe their future relationships are going to have splits in them. And again, we're trying to prevent this from happening instead of creating more of this sort of suffering. In so you're talking about two very, very important steps, perhaps the two initial steps at first. And that is, it's kind of like, um, if you don't own the story, you can't define the ending. Mm -hmm. You have to own the story, which usually has two primary emotions, as I'm hearing from you. The one is the anger, the anger that comes from the betrayal, the not fair, the why me, the look what I've done, the defensiveness about it. But that, is that true to say that's often the second thing that people feel? The pain and the hurt and the devastation might be first, or you don't want to prioritize either of them. They go together. Is the, the hurt and the suffering and the anger that goes together. And what you're saying is that the first step 
in that kind of process or any process of eventual reconciliation is to deal with the individuals separately first. In other words, giving them a chance before you even try and get them together and say, okay, we're going to do some issues clearing or let's do some conflict resolution today. You want to really deeply understand and you want them to be able to own and accept that what they might be going through are normal reactions to quite a traumatic situation. You expect there to be pain. You expect there to be anger. You want to let them say, I don't have to layer this with shame or weakness if I feel it on top of what I'm dealing with already. Not at all. You almost not normalize it from the point of view of dismissing it, but say, let's talk about it because this is what happens in these situations. Talk about it or deal with it. So would you say that it's important for people to come to terms with their reactions first in one way or another, and often if it's been very pervasive with the therapist? Maybe not necessarily, but often. I would say ideally. I mean, and it's just taking the, the reality of any other uh, life experience. You know, before a big game, there's always a pre-game huddle. Um, before a big business transaction, each individual business is preparing and getting ready and anticipating before they go into that deal. It's the very same thing in families. What we used to think was, let's just get everyone in the same room and we'll hash it out together and try to get people to understand each other. But we skipped the steps. And so I totally agree with what you're saying is, first we prepare for that. We get ready for it. So before we have we clear the group issue, we have to clear our own individual issues. Now we can globalize that too to, for example, we see here in the U.S. When I work with clients that are on both sides of many of these political struggles over here, because both come in for the stress of the addiction because the other person, they're frustrated with the other and then they have their own life challenges. So if someone's coming in and they're part of, for example, maybe more racial equality, but now they're, they're stressed out and they're, they're coming in for treatment. And then we have some first responders on the other side who are also stressed out and suffering addiction. They're coming in from treatment. They're both in the same group room at the same time. I don't ask them in that moment to try to work everything out. We meet with both of them individually and let them work through their frustrations. So it's for the racial equality. Sometimes we're going back four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten generations of pain and suffering that's been handed down from one generation to another. And I give them a space for that before they even bother talking to the individual. And if that means saying things that are mean or harmful or cool within that space and the pregame huddle, that makes perfect sense. Anything in our mind, we need to get it out. Because a lot of times they say, well, I know I shouldn't say this, but, and then they'll, they'll say the statement. So, yeah, I agree. You shouldn't go say this to the other person. But in this space, you need to get out. Go ahead. And then when you move forward to understanding and compassion and forgiveness. So basically what we're trying to do is empower compassion empower someone to be ready for it so that they have the knowledge and skills to walk in and actually do it as opposed to it being this very hard struggle in the meantime. It's and extremely important, you know, what you're saying. I mean, if we bring that into situations that are happening with gender equality or are happening with the race issue, you know, that's been so pervasive in the States and our Black Lives Matter movement right. and what historically, and I love to say historically because I think that maybe I'm naive John, in pretending that we are dealing with it and we have dealt with it a little bit because of what went down over the transition, that whole preparation for the transition, the openness, the talks. And then, of course, when it all happened, you know, look, I was in a situation in practice 
where I was seeing people who had the mindset, like we saw over the Holocaust or whatever, look, okay, the past is the past. We're over that now. But I was finding, of course, the past was the past. The past was the present. And the past definitely affected the future. So there were people who were having nightmares or who were manifesting issues physically or psychologically, behaviorally, that they didn't give themselves permission, nor did other people give themselves enough permission to really talk about. And one of the most amazing things that happened in our country, it really was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where this whole commission was established for people to come and tell their stories. In order to tell their stories, they had to know their stories. And they had to know that they were going to share their stories. And it wasn't only to do with being the victim of pain. It was also there were incredible stories of perpetrators who just also could never get rid of, of what they had done and the guilt. And it was shared and it was expressed. And I don't think that it was enough for a lot of the people individually. But what it was, was it was the recognition of the importance of it and the recognition of the permission to do it. You know, and the power of being able to do that. So you're saying that in individual cases with unresolved issues that are causing pain or manifesting, sometimes in unrecognizable, you know, when it's not connected to the issue, you start with yourself and you give yourself permission to feel what you feel sometimes with another person, deal with it sometimes for some period of time before you even are ready to not have that all spilt out in a way that might even be destructive if it's done too prematurely. So in your facilitation of William and Sebastian, you alluded to it. We didn't see much of it, but you certainly alluded to the fact that there'd been in many conversations with them individually first. Mm-hmm. Was that right in that situation? It was, and in their case, they, they had had many before I'd met them as well. There was already lots of connection and lots of reconciliation before I came in. Our okay. meetings were about the discovery process. So by the time I met them, they knew kind of what you said. They knew we want to get along. We didn't want to make amends. But what they didn't know was oh. generational experiences that was causing that. And that's the piece you're, you're alluding to, which is one of the most important, because Recovering from resentment and trauma is, as we know, it's, it's neurological, it's physiological, and it's psychological. And many cases, like a, Dr. Gabor Mate talks about this, that when, and Dr. Dan Siegel, when a child is, is still in, in utero with the mother, everything the mother's experiencing, the child is experiencing. And so that neurological download of trauma, that neurological download of suffering and anger, that baby has no idea why, but it may feel anger, it may feel resentment, and it may be dysregulated. And then so for full completion, to your point, telling the story is so powerful and so necessary, but then we also have to recover fully from our trauma, which is why the meditations or mindfulness of breathing is so important, or you know, keeping our hand on our heart on a regular basis, which releases oxytocin back into our system, or taking our energy to the gym, or taking our energy into sports, not just getting energy out, but setting the intention, I'm going to release something today. I don't even know what it is, but I'm going to let something go from my whole body every time I exhale out. And when I sit with clients, we do that consistently because some of the pain, some of the anger from generations, things we saw, we don't even remember, is in our system. They say the issue is in the tissue. 
And so, of course, we tell the story, we talk about it, we share the emotions, but then on the physiological level, I have everyone imagine breathing in like you're breathing what you want into your life, into your world, let it energize your whole system, and then breathe out like you're releasing whatever that is you don't even understand that bothers you into the floor, into the earth, and let it go. Because that's that implicit part, the non-conscious part of the brain that needs to do some work. And once we're done with the pregame huddle and we're getting in ready to talk, one of the first things I do, and actually we do this in preparation too, is visualizing what we really want from the situation. Deep down, not just that they understand it to an extent, what is it we really want? And what is something we can wish for that other person? So before they even bother getting in the room, I'm having them sit, I'm having them breathe, I'm having them focus on their own part, and then sending a wish to that person, to even ever so small, and leading from that within the conversation before we do the issue clearing. Because on that deeper, implicit level, we're feeling that. We all know we walk into a room, someone's mad. We don't know why we feel it. So same thing. If I feel that walk into a room, this person's already given me the look, my defense is just shot up too. But if we train each other to first have compassion, true compassion, send good wishes to the best of our ability, ever so small, ever so big. And then on our face, how are we expressing that? Now we've created a real space for change and healing, which is what most of us deep down want. I don't want you to suffer. I want to feel better. You know, I want to feel safe again. I want to feel good about myself and I want to go live my life. What I'm hearing is that there's a lot of pre-work. There's a lot that needs to be done about recognition of your own feelings and your own reactions. There's quite a lot that needs to be done about understanding and releasing where a lot of this comes from. You recognizing the influence of um, generational trauma that affects all of this. And the techniques on mindfulness, maybe you can say a word or two about that. You've spoken about deep breathing, you've spoken about meditation, you've spoken about release, you spoke about going to the gym, you spoke about working with your hands. These are all ways of doing with it, dealing with it. And then you get to the point where you say, okay, I know what I want. I can kind of visualize it. I'm not sure if it's going to happen, mm-hmm. but I sort of can visualize a, a desired outcome. I'm now ready to reach out or to talk or to make the first move. How do you invite the other person if there hasn't been contact for some time? Uh, that's a great question. Some of the techniques that really help, obviously, is going through both scenarios. What's it gonna be like if they say yes, no, or something else, play those out ahead of time. Have a friend to support. We don't have to do this stuff alone. So a safe friend, someone who understands healing, maybe someone in recovery, maybe a therapist, whatever it might be, to bookend the experience. So this is the person you call before, say, hey, I'm about to make that phone call, reach out, and this is the person you contact after to debrief, say, hey, how it went. That helps, because many cases we don't do that, we And so it's like, oh, I'm going to call them and maybe I'm going to get a cup of coffee first. Maybe I'm going to go to the bakery first. Maybe what's on TV today? We start avoiding it, but we know there's someone that's going to hold us accountable in a loving way at house. And then when we get ready, maybe scripting out what we're going to say, talking to an empty chair, talking to the wall, talking to a teddy bear, practicing multiple times. Because again, you don't have to walk into game time without preparation. Then use the method that makes the most sense for you. For some people, that's writing a letter first or an email, and sending it, and then saying in that letter, I'm going to come give you a call in about a week, two weeks, depending on your mail, and I'd like to talk about this. And, you know, laying forward what it is we're really looking for from this person, because, again, we got to remember, they not, haven't had the therapy we've had. 
So an expectation right. you're going to talk to us the way that we're communicating may not be the deal. So what is, who do we want to be? What are the principles we want to live by as we show up in this conversation? That's all we've got to worry about. So in terms of, of like, I don't want to make it, okay, five recipes for success, but in terms of tips, mm. you often hear things over and over again, say I, not one or you. Talk about your feelings. Mm. So that kind of following that would be, I have been thinking about us. And, and um, you know, it's been, it's been many, many years, and I just need to tell you that, that it's a relationship that is still important to me even though that we had some, maybe something that I value and I would like to discuss. Or I have, you know, so many memories of our childhood when things were really different. Or I was just thinking about the day, do you remember that birthday party we had when there was a magician? I don't know. I'm just saying to you, in terms of what you put in the letter, the email, or that conversation, to kind of help the person not be so defensive and prickly mm. and angry. Are there ways of inviting them so that at least they could be a little bit curious as to what this is all about? That's a great question. I love what you just shared, Dr. D, is, is obviously spot on, is we start with statements that aren't you, um, statements that are I, and stating our intention very early on in that letter so that they know what we're trying to achieve. And usually stating something like you did so wonderfully is stating something that is warm, stating something that is connection. So we're not walking in and picking a fight for this scenario. So the great example you gave, you know, I really want to talk to you because I miss talking to you, or I want to communicate with you because my preference is that at least we have some kind of closure together. And that if we're not gonna stay connected, I would like for us to at least talk about it first. And then I'd like to share what I appreciate about you as well. And then move on. Because those are, to your point, those are the things that we can change. So the serenity, prayer, and action. You know, have the serenity to accept the things we cannot change. We cannot, we can influence. We can't change other people. Courage to change the things we can. Well, that's us. And then having that wisdom to know the difference. And when we lead with those kind of statements of what we would like to do, we would like to achieve and not point out what they did wrong through the whole experience, then they're likely to hear us more. And stating that in an agreement, I would like to share this. Can you hear me until I'm done? And then I'd like to hear you. And then reflect back to them what they say as well. Right. So that's the part. And when you say the wisdom to know the difference, you know, the courage to change what you can, the, the serenity to accept what you can't, I think, and the wisdom to know the difference. Sometimes we're at the stage where we don't have the wisdom to know the difference but it requires the risk. So you, you may be err after having done some of the personal work on the side of courage to change things or to at least attempt on my part to influence the things I can in order to learn about the possibility of changing, the, of, of knowing the difference between what I can and what I can't. So it involves you know, some sort of risk. And that risk involves um, I don't know if you um, think that you would agree with this, that there's a degree of vulnerability. Yeah. It is the degree of openness. There's a degree of sharing. There's a degree of saying I'm hurting. There's a degree sometimes of even saying I'm sorry if you do, if you are. And not, maybe not even sorry for the action, but uh, 
I'm sorry that this has gone on for so many years and that my I haven't reached out before. Maybe that, that doesn't come into the initial letter. Maybe it's the initial conversation. Mm-hmm. So once you get the pin and, and you decide that vulnerability is necessary for authentic connection, if you are going to do that, there's a risk that you, as Brené Brown always says, you're going to get your ass kicked. If you stand in the arena, kid, and you're going to dare greatly, it's a chance that what might happen, but the but the the downside of not doing it means the maintenance of something that is an obstacle to moving forward in your life, possibly, or causing you quite a lot of pain. Yeah. So then, let's just say it's two people, maybe it's more than two people, ongoing rivals, let's say, who have had this and we've got together and you start in the way that we're talking about and so on. The first thing that you alluded to early on is getting it. What do you mean by getting it? Is it the other person has to get something or, or they have to get or understand something from each other, some understanding from each one's point of view? So when we when working with families, and we talk about the idea of getting it. Obviously, the, the idea we talk about the external locus of control. When we're younger, we everything is about the world around us, right? Our parents are control, teachers in control, everyone else is control. And for us to survive, they we have this desire for them to understand us. And if they can just understand us, maybe they'll treat us differently. As we continue to grow and mature, then we get that internal locus of control. We have some self-efficacy. We can begin to move. We can have control in our own lives. But many times we get locked down in that old point of view. And so we get upset sometimes with other people understanding us, them getting us, them knowing what we're coming from. And some of that's natural, never totally goes away. But when it's in extremes, it causes harm. So it's the idea like the St. Francis prayer, seek to understand to be understood. Well, first we try to understand ourselves. Then we try to understand the other person. And that usually lowers the defenses for other people. The part that we also talk about too is safe or healthy vulnerability. So if the person I'm going to go back and talk to is still not a safe person, you know, they're still back in their own kind of way of doing things, it wouldn't make sense for me to be completely open and vulnerable with them because we're going to recreate a trauma, recreate, you know, the same thing over again. And then again, that's the part that we miss sometimes. Reconciliation doesn't always mean that we're going to be hanging out and having tea together all the time. It just means you're reconciled. It's clean. So going in and making that decision ahead of time of, of course, we want to be vulnerable, but be vulnerable in ways that are safe. Having our prepared boundaries ready to go when that comes up, and those are back to those I say. I'm willing to hear you as long as you're not yelling at me. As long as you're not saying something that's cruel or mean or has obscenity, I'm willing to hear you. And then when we're having those conversations, that creates safety in those cases where people aren't necessarily gone through therapy or healing, because now we can maintain a boundary in a way that doesn't say, stop yelling at me, stop doing that to me. Because again, we're giving them power over our own lives. I'm willing to speak and hear you as long as you're safe with me. And when that doesn't happen, we can hang up the phone before it's over in those cases and say, okay, that was my try. Maybe again in a couple of years or maybe never, but I reached out and I had my sense of vulnerability. And that's why that book ending is so, so important. We don't want to spend the rest of our day in our isolating our own thoughts after calling our mother or father or someone who may be an ex-relationship and let that now, the resentment, go over and over again. We're about moving forward. So that's why we call that safe person the process, the debrief, and letting them know what we're looking for out of it. I, you don't have to analyze me. You don't have to tell me how well or bad I did. Can you just hear me? Let me process it out. 
and that creates closure in our mind, and then we can begin to really move forward. That's incredibly important, having that person. I love the way you're talking about it as, as a bookend, mm. kind of safety net. Yeah. Is the yelling, the the um, yelling, the abusive behavior that could be sparked, especially in the one who doesn't, who hasn't really done all the work, mm-hmm. is that a game changer? If you set the the boundaries and the rules early on, I'm here to hear you. I want to hear things from your your point of view definitely. I will be receptive and open. I'll make sure that I've heard you properly or I'll try. I'll ask you if there's anything more that you would like to say or something that I've missed. But can you say and is it true that if you yell and you're annihilating or dismissive or whatever, I can't, I I don't want to carry on with this conversation anymore? I agree. I think safety is always an important thing because when we go for Vulnerability, it's a healthy kind. We don't want to recreate the same scenario we had before. And so I think kind of a two, three strikes are out unless it's just really bad from the get go and we can see it. Having a planned way to bow out of that situation where we still get closure, I think is very important. So we, they begin to yell and we, we recheck that, that boundary because maybe they're testing that boundary with us. Well, maybe they're going to hold to it. Maybe they're not. So uh, the first time it comes in, say, hey, remember we had that agreement, right? And you made an agreement with me. So we put it back on them in a loving way. So that's the piece of compassion we don't talk about a lot is compassion is we also expect the best out of other people. So if I walk into reconciliation, I expect them to do the wrong thing. They're going to feel that, right? And then I can say I tried, but I'm almost gaslighting them. But if I expect them, and when I mean this with love, I don't mean this with you know control. If I expect them to be the very best in that moment, they might step up to it. So maybe there's two or three times you go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You agreed you weren't going to yell. And I know you can do this. I truly believe in you. And I, I think you have that in you. And I mean that with kindness and respect. Can we reboot this? You need to try a couple of times. If it's continuous and you realize that the whole time you're being there, they're going to continue that way of doing it, then that's when we bow out with grace. We go, you know what? I'm so glad we met. I'm so glad I got to see you. It's just wonderful to have time with you. Looks like um, this isn't the right time and place for this. I, I, I don't want to be yelled at today, um, but I, I'm really happy I saw you. And either it's hanging up the phone, I'm going to go ahead and hang up, I wish you the best, or it's I'm going to go ahead and leave now, I wish you the very best. Um, say hi to everybody for me. and then You know what's incredible, John, just listening to you talk about this, is that you do not allow yourself to get hooked mm-hmm. by the person. You maintain, you hold the space. You know, in the way you're talking about it, you're talking about it intentionally, not being triggered mm-hmm. by all of that that could have triggered you before, very easily before, and holding the space. So you will say you do it in exactly the way that you've said. You know, we have met. Thank you for the time. You know, no, I don't want to be yelled at. I would like to understand you or for, to be understood. We can try again. And if that perpetuates, you bow, I love the bow out with grace and say hello i think the skill is is trying to control it and not doing it too soon the mindset of believing that because the person is also there and shows up there's still something in them that wants it otherwise why are they there they would have just put down the phone or closed the door on you you have to find a way of reigniting that spark again 
maintaining your dignity, but also huge respect of where the other person is at. All of that is quite difficult, which leads me to say, I made a mistake, and I'll tell you the mistake that I made towards the beginning of lockdown. You know, thinking that in lockdown, this was a good time to deal with the elephant in the room, the two elephants in the room, or the herd of elephants in the room, that haven't, no one has time, they're all out and about, or that have been too difficult, or, you know, you just talk about issues all the time, not about hopes or dreams or aspirations or things that need to be dealt with. And there, were, there was, and actually for most of the time, people were able to do that with good results. A lot of the time people were saying, you know, this has been like an incubator. If our communication was basically good and we wanted to have that kind of connection and have it be the best it could be, we were able to do it. But there were times where that was not in place too. That pre-work had not been done. The issues had just kind of grown out of proportion. And there was one time where I believe that I inadvertently, well, not inadvertently, let me own it. And I said, I suggested that it could be a time. And it blew itself out of of proportion. Those people who try to deal with this were not ready in the way we're talking about it. It just escalated the issues that were not there before. They could really only do it with a third person who could control the interaction in a better way or at least act as an interpreter or a decipherer of what the other people were saying. And the result of that, you know, during that time was really, it was unfortunate, made it worse than it was ever before. And they were just able to say, well, I guess you can say, well, we confirmed what we thought isn't always worse. But I think that it could have been dealt with, with a third person there, assisting them in a far better way. So I'm just saying that that could be, is is an issue. And then I just wanted to ask you, once the person, and I think that this happens more often than we think, that the other party are almost as relieved as you are, if not more. In fact, you've given them a way out because they didn't have to be the first one. In their minds, you know, they've kind of, they responded to someone reaching out instead of them initiating it. And until they realize that too much pride causes too much pain and that they are there and it's with relief. And they do begin to understand it far better to challenge assumptions that they had about the other person. And they get to that point of understanding of, I can't tell you, it's the beginning of a new process. I feel relieved, maybe not completely resolved in one meeting, but relieved that we've started this process and we've had this connecting and courageous conversation. What has to happen after that? I think it depends on the person, the relationship and the goal, but it's definitely a solution-focused conversation. So when we're looking for, if it's bringing a couple back together maybe, and they're like, man, I'm so glad we, we talked about this. It's wonderful. It's this question you ask, what do we do from here? And what I'm looking for is for us to connect in a way where we can both feel good about it. And let's talk for a minute about what that would look like for each one of us. And then we start to create examples together. And again, that could be meeting too, so that we're prepared with our counselor or therapist or coach 
what those things are. So we're not making that up in the moment. And then we feel like we're stuck to whatever that decision is. So some examples are moving forward. When I call you for Christmas, what I'd really like is for you just to say hi to me and just tell me a little bit about what the kids are doing. I love you. I love hearing from you. I don't want to hear the politics. We see it all day on TV. That would be just one example of what it might be. Or, you know, one person, they, they, there is this gentleman who used to call his daughter all the time when he'd forget her birthday and say, ah, I'm sorry, I forgot your birthday. Well, then she said, from now on, when you call me, don't tell me you forgot my birthday. Just call and say happy birthday. That makes me feel good. And those are the kind of things that are very little, but very empowering for this person who maybe doesn't know how to connect another way, shape, or form. And so those are the things we want to look for is, can you agree to that? And then when they say yes, oh, wonderful, thank you so much, and then hold them accountable with that kind of compassion where we expect the very, very best from them out of those scenarios without control, but with love and warmth. And then now they're set up for success. They know what they need to do and how to treat us, and they can decide whether they want to. And we know what they want as well, and we can decide whether or not we want to participate. And now we can, again, either engage or end with love. John, I think that this is incredibly powerful. Um, you know, maybe as a start, most successfully having the setting up the person for success and having the real belief that it will be translated into the actually, you know, into the way of interaction and into the behavior that says to the other person, I know who you are. There's an expectation of willingness. It's an expectation, not being unrealistic about it, but, you know, going in with that kind of mindset of expectation of connection rather than anticipation of disconnection, again, or at least a hope. And I think that that is um, amazingly important. And then after that, I suppose, you know, what we're going to say, there may be ups and downs, there may be some interaction where all the old memories come back. There may be times where you think, look, I knew that this would be a waste of time. But when you look at the overall thing, the sense of the fact that you on, I mean, that's what we picked up between Sebastian and William. Their kind of said and unsaid desire and celebration of the reconciliation and that they were going to hold on to that and kind of do whatever it took to keep that going and to deepen it even even further and it looked as if they were doing an incredible job even from the way they dealt with each other live on the webinar where they honored each other i totally agree and i think we're actually working together on a couple of projects um, getting them into some of the prison systems and working with youth and to your point, they very much, when I watch William and Sebastian interact, they always do with courtesy, helpfulness, and respect. And it's incredible. These are two families that were literally trying to kill each other, but now they're trying to help each other. And I think the one of the points that really makes that possible is they're on a common purpose and they have a common goal together. They both want the same thing. And when we start with wanting the same thing, then it's easier to work together. We can manage all the other things that are the, the buttons that get pushed along the way, because I'm sure they have their moments, human beings do. But if we're going towards our common goal and purpose, it's much easier to maintain that connection, just like with families. Our goal is that I want to feel good and connect to this person from time to time. 
And if that's my common goal, or maybe there's something we can do together as a family or a group or a couple that you know brings us out of ourselves a little bit, then it's easier to maintain those connections. And then our connections don't become about pass or fail moments, but more about just kind of bumps along the road to missing success. Absolutely. So just one more question before we sum up. I think that wanting the same thing is just an amazing starting point. And one can highlight that. And quite often, it's even possible to say, in listening to each of you separately, it could be either of your voices. You're saying the same thing. Even if you talk about a couple, that you would like to have more time together, that you miss each other that you didn't feel valued or cared for enough, that you both want to, and that you can kind of highlight what it is that they both want, which is being, it's, it's starting with wanting the same thing. Sometimes they say, I'm not sure if I want the same thing until I know about, about whether there can be a future with a difference. Mm-hmm. I want to know about the possibility of some kind of future with you where we recognize some of these wonderful connecting points that we've had and we deal with openly with some of what, you know, the, these areas that have just caused such pain between us. So I can't really say now that I want the same thing. Maybe the best that I can say is I want to do a journey to see if I want the same thing and carry on from there. Of course, and knowing what it is, knowing what it is, it will tell me whether or not I want to continue. Yeah, it's so important because sometimes, especially relationships, it's the feel-good moments. We get lost. At, well, I don't know because it feels so good when I'm with you, but then I feel pain about this and this, and there's trust issues over here and challenges. But and so it's hard to decide. But when we go, okay, well, for me to move forward and connect, I need these four things, whatever they might be. And if I'm not getting those four things, I know this relationship won't work, whether it's a community, whether it's, you know, family, whether it's a couple is agreeing on those. And then sometimes, wow, it was good to try that again. So great seeing you. What an honor. These four things aren't working. And I know that I'm going to end hating you or resenting you if I stay in this relationship as it is for six months. So let's not do that. Let's go ahead and while we're still feeling good, let's step away cry and grieve because that's a big piece in relationships we miss even though we know it's not going to work out but i'm still sad of course you are because you're a breathing human being so feel the pain feel the loss of that and know that it just didn't work and that's okay and then go for that vision of what you do want what would be your kind of central three things that almost always need to be there for this to be successful in the end I think the, the first one is a commitment for both sides for their own self-cultivation and growth. Without that, it's hard to really move forward. It doesn't mean they have to be, um, you know, meditate for hours. Every, but something about personal growth and healing for that person. But they have their own mental, physical, financial health. So they're working towards it. The other one, to your point, is there has to be mutual respect. That, that one has to be that we treat each other like human beings. And the third one, if we're going for three, would be that we communicate that we share our feelings and thoughts in a way that's helpful to each other. And I think if you start with those three, your own health, mutual respect and communication, then we can build on those things. But if we can't have those three, then it's really hard to actually have life together. John, I must thank you very, very much. I mean, you've really gone through the whole process of self-understanding and work. 
the effect of our multi-generational influence um, and how we hold we hold the issue in our tissue, I think you said. And the necessity to understand some of that and to give ourselves permission to feel our own emotion, whether it's pain or anger or a combination or, or whatever. To be kind to ourselves with our feelings and to be able to, to, to deal with it and express it and develop ways of coping with it individually, whether it's mindfulness or meditation or the other methods. And then to say we can have these courageous conversations because I want to, because I don't want to live without trying to do it. And I'm going to, and I'm going to do my best. And that requires courage, requires openness, and it requires vulnerability. And it requires being able to talk about it from your point of view by whatever means. It also requires the amazing mindset that you have of success and belief in wanting the other person to be the best they can, which I think is one thing that's often not. There's the expectation of them coming in and tripping you up before you even start. So to have the expectation that they somewhere might want this too and that you've seen glimpses of the person that you want to connect with and that you know what this can be. And then going on the journey and remembering the importance of the things that are non-negotiable and what they look like. What does respect look like? How do we really communicate? What would be important to you? And is this engendering to me as well? I'm doing it for not only clearing myself inside, but growing myself as I go forward in life as well. It's been fascinating, John. No, thank you very, very much. No worries. It's a pleasure and an honor. I'm Dorianne Wheel. Thanks for listening to Thrive with Dr. D, a jackpot podcast.